All right. Uh, welcome to the Bridge Podcast. Uh, I'm John Lamberton. I'm here today with Mark Sabat. Mark is a brilliant composer based out of Berlin, uh, who does a lot of work in just intonation and microtonality. Um, also has the imprint uh, Plain Sound Editions. And so, uh, welcome to the podcast, Mark. It's great to have you. Thanks. Great to join. So uh, I hear that you just brewed up an espresso, and my typical icebreaker is to ask about people's coffee habits. Um, I'd love if I could hear about your coffee habits, preferences, uh, that type of thing. Well, I love um, a well-made espresso, and that generally means not a light roast in the sort of, uh, you know, um, trendy trendy fashion to have it quite green. I I like a well-roasted espresso with... um, some robusta in it, and I've had a kind of um, uh, portafilter machine at home since 2001, so for quite a while. And uh, I, I like to I like to make an espresso, but I also enjoy uh, oolong teas and uh, various sort of changing changing uh, things that I get into. Excellent. I, I took you to be somebody that would enjoy a good espresso and a good tea, and I'm glad that I was I was correct. Correct, um, yeah. without sugar, you, of course. Of course. Uh, yeah. And how often would you say you drink espresso? Do you drink filtered coffee as well? Um, if I have to, uh, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the sort of pour over filter stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. when I'm, uh, I've got a studio where I'm working where I don't have the espresso machine handy, then I'll, then I'll do that. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Um, cool. Well, um, let's talk about some music stuff. Uh, so in our exchanges over email, you used a term that I thought was uh, very spot on, and that is weird microtonality. <laughs> and um, so just a provocation to sort of get us started. Um, you know, it, it occurred to me that basically like the people in the microtonal world um, are under this one big umbrella of microtonality, but some people are wanting their intervals more in tune, and some people sort of want a bigger color palette, um, you know, which means smaller and smaller intervals. And at the same time, um, you know, maybe the size of the interval isn't that important, but isn't a 12-tone equal temperament, which, you know, we think of to be normal, or maybe not we, but a lot of people think to be normal, is that maybe more microtonal in the sense that it's, you know, the 12th root of two to get a semitone instead of something nice and parsimonious like 16 over 15? I mean, I, I think that, I mean, for me, the, the key thing that interests me in in tuning is sort of the psycho, psychoacoustic experience of the sound. So I came to it as a violinist and I had to, in the process of tuning double stops, you know, multiple sounds, um, you end up searching through quite a lot of variation. So it's like inherently microtonal in the searching, but there's like certain intervals which stand out, which seem in tune. So there's a kind of, um, I guess, a distinction, categories that you learn. And, you know, you learn, you remember the sound, maybe you recognize uh, different tones, other kinds of phenomena, but essentially you get get to know a certain repertoire of sounds. And then at some point you notice that it, is not correlated one-to-one with the piano. Like there might be, for example, uh, multiple versions of a note depending on how you tune it. Mm -hmm. And on the piano, it'll just have one note name and so on. So that's a little bit how how I came to it. Now, I know that there's like a lot of different positions about it, but I guess I'm sort of quite interested then in following, let's say notating and making playable, making audible, these kind of distinctions, Mm -hmm. which then are inherently um, very differentiated. They're they're not necessarily even. And so one of the things about equal temperament, one of its beauties, of course, is is that it's the simplest set of notes which comes very close to harmonicity, like it represents fairly well, um, let's say up to the seven limit, like with, you know, like a reasonable error, you can make chords that sound like sevenths, you know, and that's how sort of the the language of temperate harmony or, or of harmony and equal temperament uh, evolved was, you know, describing that. And of course, that's possible in a number of different tuning systems. And when they're equal temperaments, 
then you notice that they have this kind of microtonal quality when you listen to a chromatic scale. A chromatic scale in 12, uh, EDO or TT, whatever you want to call it, uh, is somehow not unlike a chromatic scale in 11 or in 31 or, you know. Um, so similar systems, like let's say, between a quarter tone and a half tone kind of system, the, the chromatics will sound similarly microtonal in the way that you're not recognizing necessarily harmonic connections between the neighboring notes. They're, it's, they're sort of too small for that. So in a way, it is true, but the, the quality of the equal temperaments, the, these evennesses, are things that um, we also recognize as a kind of simplicity. So I guess the... In, in my composing recently, I've, I've approached sort of some equal temperaments, but it's not, it hasn't been sort of a main concern up to now, at least. I, I, have, I know that there's a lot of theorists, especially from, from the states, that are, have gone quite deep into that area, but I've been sort of a little bit more maybe James Tenney, Lamont Young, Harry Parch, Ben Johnston, getting the sounds vertically really in tune and finding ways that instruments can realize that. That's been sort of a little bit in a nutshell, what I've been trying to do in the last uh, 30 years. I see. Um, with the just intonation use of, you know, like I know your background, you have some background in mathematics and I, I like to sort of like wish that I had more of a background, but um, you know, just using natural numbers and fractions, there's something very, you know, uh, pretty straightforward about it, but humans I just feel like aren't very well equipped for logarithms. Um, so do you think that there's something that is more human. Uh, I mean, this is to be a little bit poetic about saying it, but do you think that just intonation has some better human resonance or something like that? Well, I, I guess it depends on, you know, the mode of perception or reception that you're talking about, because, you know, um, I think that the, the whole, the whole number relationships in equal temperament are related to the way in which sounds fuse mm. kind of uh, after they've reached our ears, the way they're sort of processed, something to do with the kind of um, correlation of the waveform or time-based analysis. Um, Lamont Young described it as sort of the, the recognizability of the periodicity or near periodicity and that somehow there was an association there with specific states of mind or even feelings maybe um and i think it's it's not so far off the mark that uh, so that's that's an aspect but it's not necessarily because they're whole numbers because there's other aspects of perception where maybe irrational relationships but ones which are geometrically logical like a, a circle which is pi you know that's mm -hmm. that's a transcendental number not even a you know, it's not even an algebraic number or something like that, but it is something which is quite holistic too, right? So I, I think it's hard to generalize in, in that way. Mm -hmm. I see. Gotcha. Um, so you mentioned, you know, a lot of the theorists in the States, and um, I, I tend to agree that there's this, you know, this deep fascination with the materials that is quite interesting, but at the same time, um, I feel like maybe there is sort of, you know, a tendency for people to lose sight of creating, you know, quote, real music. And I find that in your music, like, there's a, a very mature quality about it that it seems like you aren't wrestling with the materials in the same way, or you aren't sort of like obsessed with just showing notes about uh, how different intervals come about. Um, and I'm wondering if you ever had to get over that hurdle of just being, you know, fundamentally fascinated with uh, this type of like the mathematics of it, uh, and when did it become, you know, intuitive or, uh, sort of clear for you? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the material itself is super fascinating and really complex and it takes a long time to kind of, uh, to become intuitive or, or where, where, where maybe the way of dealing with it doesn't require as many, let's say, algorithmic crutches or systems and things like that but obviously that's also part of um, understanding or analyzing um, the material so I mean I think for for almost anyone any artist I can think of who start to learn about it and let's say gradually transition from 
maybe a practice that wasn't uh, using, uh, let's say, unusual pitch approaches or using simply the uh, existing equal tempered pitches or the notation or mean tone or something like that or unspecified pitch to moving towards, let's say, making concrete decisions about pitch in composing. I mean, so that's, it changes, I guess, a lot of the, a lot of the aspects of composition. It, it makes certain things, draws your attention to certain things, whether it's like slow time, for example, is one. Um, another one is in equal temperament, there's always this possibility of tumbling further and further. Every note becomes a new center. And with just intonation, you're kind of always keeping track of the harmonic steps from a certain point that got you to a certain place. And then in a way you can return along those steps or maybe in a different order. Um, and also there's an aspect of it that's connected to, let's say, experimental minimalism, the sense of like revealing certain simple things and allowing a piece to be about revealing a phenomenon. But for me, it was always kind of important that that goes hand in hand with a, um, not forgetting that whatever system you have, sensation is always much richer and much more complex than the system you might be thinking about. And people don't necessarily hear through the system that you've used to construct. And so in a way to be able to step back and have a sense of how, how the things you're working on or working with um, impinge on perception, on your own perception, you know, whether it's closing your eyes or just spending a lot of time doing repetition until you understand it that way. I, th I find that helped me a lot to, to get get freer, I guess, to get freer with it and not, not quite as system-driven. I see. Um, I also get the sense from listening to your music that if there's any system that's implemented, it's like, you know, the, the results are maybe, like the phenomenology of it, you know, like you're saying, the sensation of it is more complex than maybe the actual system itself. Um, so how much of the formal aspects would you say are sort of emergent properties and how much would you say um, you're imposing formal aspects? I, I'm I'm not such a, um, uh, you know, in, in the 20th century, uh, people that both like Cage and like Stockhausen, uh, who are sort of like, you know, archetypal figures were involved in a lot of pre-structuring and then filling that with material, sort of creating sort of almost time skeletons or, you know, structure skeletons. And I think a little bit about that, but it I try to leave that like fairly open to to some transformation, although sometimes I'll be quite strict with, let's say, you know, counting bar numbers and transformations and, uh, you know, um, variations, modifications. I guess... Um, I mean, some pieces, for example, I earlier on especially, I would set up some kind of system that was be, a little bit beyond my control that was maybe chance-driven or logic-driven, like a piece like Wave Piano Scenery Player did an um, analysis of harmonic space based on a James Tenney algorithm, a crystal growth algorithm, where every new pitch has to sort of minimize some kind of mathematical sum of harmonic distance and hmm. and then older pitches gradually become less important they sort of become weighted less and so it set up this whole system and the, and the goal was using this system to map every tempered note on the piano with an error that didn't exceed seven cents so it took a certain time till it was done and then all of those pitches, which many of which were microtonal, I think it was like 1,300 or something, became the cantus firmus of a piece, which um, later wow. was called Lying in the Grass, uh, River and Clouds, sort of a, a chamber concerto, a half-hour piece, but it had various different iterations of it. So that was fairly strict, and in the composition, the I didn't destroy that backbone. It's really there, and it's at specific points, but then the stuff which is woven around it was then quite freely created to sort of create create a, like a network that 
would connect these otherwise quite what would have been like music of changes, sort of like you know disparate microtonal notes, you know, in a, in a sort of almost disembodied from gravity or anything. Interesting. Um, so, sorry, you're saying that that cantus firmus had uh, about a thousand different distinct pitches that were between the octave. Uh, well, it wasn't. This was not octave equivalent. That was okay. the unusual thing. I took the range of the piano. I would throw out notes that went outside of it, but basically, it would generate ratios within within the the twenty seven hertz to whatever four thousand two hundred hertz range of the piano, something like that. And the logic was it was kind of a fun logic, you know, because I think one of the things that you know you and I were corresponding about was how to deal with instruments that are not like the violin, the voice, the trombone, you know, the, the flexible pitch, naturally microtonal instruments. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you deal with, for example, the equal-tempered piano? One approach is retune it, make the well-tuned piano. We know mm -hmm. that piece. Um, uh, and it's a great composition. Uh, one other approach is to take the tones that are there and then treat them like it's a microtonal set, like what you were saying about equal temperament. And so then the approach that I took with the piano was to make a list of all the dyads of the piano, so two keys together, and calculate the sum and difference tones, which then gives you a microtonal glissando. And then if you do a reverse lookup table, then you have a glissando across the range of the piano, and for any microtonal pitch, you'll find a dyad. And, you know, so you, 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 you have a way that you could always harmonize any microtonal pitch by two notes on the piano so there'd be something to play and uh, in that way the equal temperament they might be like uh, strange high harmonics they might be unusual undertones but they they do somehow then relate harmonically to the network uh, of more pitches that surrounds them and so that's been one approach to deal with let's say instruments that have a like say a specified pitch set which isn't uh, in just intonation how to integrate it you know Interesting. in in a in a piece um based on what you're saying i'm thinking of sort of two distinct questions and one is um i know that you did computer music at mcgill and I'm, like just hearing the way that you're speaking about this um like i'm somebody that is very interested in algorithmic composition but uh the fluency of how you're talking about these sort of processes uh uh, I'm <laughs> I'm uh, admiring it. I, I want to know about your background in computer music at McGill, but also you mentioned uh, undertones, and maybe this is a quicker thing to answer. But um, to what extent are those real? Because I feel like if you look on the Wikipedia, it might say that it's like a, a theoretical concept, but it's not a physical. Uh, it's not actually uh, you know physically instantiated. Uh, so I'm curious your takes on that. Yeah, I think it depends how you want to look at it. I mean, the phenomenon of harmonic fusion, like of, let's say of frequencies that relate as integer multiples of a fundamental and are tuned that way, and their psychoacoustic um, ability to create fusion is a special phenomenon that's not the same okay. in a subharmonic structure. So that's, that's true. Um, but there are many kinds of situations in which subharmonic relationships exist in physical reality. One example is that the, if you divide a string, let's say, into you try to play the seventh partial on a violin, you have six nodes on the string that can each sound that partial, and each one is a subharmonic of the seventh harmonic. So when you push your finger down, right, the first node is going to be the, the seventh partial, the second note is going to be an octave below it. The third note is going to be an octave and the fifth below it. So it follows a subharmonic series. Okay. Right? That happens with natural harmonics. It happens with um, the additive valve lengths on brass instruments. So when you have valves, and if, if you tr treat them as proportionally tuned, which is something that I've done, and various other people like Robin Hayward in Berlin does that quite often. There's a number of... Uh, people who think in terms of the proportions of the valves, uh, then those add up subharmonically, right? Because the lengths are being added, so you're actually changing the wavelengths in proportions. Now, that doesn't mean that it creates um, sort of like a subharmonic series, but it creates a, a series of subharmonic steps okay. so that are related 
um, in terms of an upper note. And then the last example I would give is just counterpoint. So, for example, in if you have a, a pedal bass and then you have notes over it, then the notes which would be harmonious with that bass would be notes that are somehow harmonics or in a simple rational relationship to the bass. And then if you have a high uh, discant note and then you have notes below it, then the notes which would be harmonious with it would be subharmonics if the lower note is moving. So, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, there, there are lots of, like, melodic... Um, so melodic, uh, there's yet another example, which is the fretting of something like uh, if you have a, a fretted a fretted instrument, if you divide the frets in half, you create a subharmonic division. So frets uh, on, an, uh, on an instrument that are, let's say, equally spaced naturally create a subharmonic series. So there's, there's many ways that it very, let's say, uh, physically emerges, and the relationships are not inaudible. They're, they're just best heard melodically rather than as a chord. They don't make great chords as such. Got they it. make some chords. They make the minor chord. They make the, the Tristan chord. You know, they make a couple of chords up to the seven limit, and then they're probably then too muddy, you know, beyond that to have any, uh, like, acoustic fusion. So that's okay. the subharmonic question. What, what was the other question? Um, first of all, that was a, a good response that wasn't, you know, kind of like, does it exist or does it not? Because that seems to be the usual take. And that's how I phrased it, too. But um, that was that was good. Um, uh, the other thing was just I'd be curious to hear about your background in computer music at McGill and sort of uh, any lessons that you've learned or any sort of um, trends that you've seen that you appreciate or that you don't appreciate in computer music. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sort of a, I I use the computer to to do some analysis for composition to create cantus firmus, create structures. I also use it. Um, I used it a lot early on in the form of, of physical synthesizers, digital synthesizers, and then later using Max MSP and more recently Super Collider um, to to create uh, software tools that allow me to do cer certain things which are difficult on existing instruments. So, so I've, I, I kind of use it as an ongoing part of my practice, particularly like um, for, for composing, right? As, as composing tools, composing machines. And to some extent, uh, as part of pieces, but uh, in, in a fairly simple way. So, um, not, not uh, deeply. Let's say you know machines that listen to what the performers are playing, then change and react to them. Those kind of uh, you know that's super interesting research. But I I haven't gone too far down that road. The closest to that that I did was to develop an algorithm for um, choosing tunings on the fly. So you have a, if you've got a continuum keyboard, one of these kind of uh, MPE type controllers, you know, continuous mm -hmm. controllers, then it, you could choose different sort of subsets of harmonic space that would then uh, be contextually um, set up in real time. It's not too it's not too complicated. It just uses something similar to that crystal algorithm or sort of, you know, uh, you know, basically um, emphasizing certain possible ratios out of a very large pool of possibilities. But it sounds really nice. It's a nice kind of tool that I hope to do more with in the future. Um, I, I went to McGill and spent a year there uh, as a special student, uh, had uh, contact with Alcides Lanza, with Bruce Pennycook, who were there at the time. Uh, he had an early sort of Mac lab that was trying to do sort of jazz improvisation, you know, sort of responding um, sort of real-time real time MIDI kind of things at that time. And also I had some encounters with the, with the tape music, sort of the end, ends of the tape music uh, generation, mm -hmm. because there were some, some folks there who had, you know, done that kind of reel-to-reel -reel cutting and that type of music. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't pursue it, like, you know, to go into a, like a multi-year study or to go into a doctorate or whatever, but I did take a lot out of, out of it. And then I sort of felt like, um, 
you know, the tools that I needed were just a little bit different than what was available then. And I, I kind of waited around, I guess, for the real, real time synthesis stuff or Max MSP and mm-hmm. uh, programs where I could, um, I guess I didn't get so deep into the idea of using MIDI as a microtonal tool. I know that a lot of people in the community did that in the in the late '80s and '90s, and so on. Also, you know, even earlier on, to to investigate um, some of the different kinds of tuning systems. I always felt like the like the timbral possibilities were a little bit maybe maybe a little bit too basic in that case. I mean, either you went for the very simple you know, pure sign tone or sawtooth or whatever, which still is, can be quite cool. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess these days with the, with the digital controlled analog subtractive synthesis, I guess you get some really beautiful, rich sounds. I mean, uh, Alan Arkbro, who uh, came and worked with me at Udeka for some years and now, you know, does a lot, a lot of work with synthesis plus organ and acoustic instruments. Um, and that's a nice example of you know, sort of integrating those sounds with the acoustic sounds. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm aware of a lot of the sort of tendencies of, you know, sort of more complex algorithmic uh, initiatives. I sort of feel like for 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 something as multidimensional as just intonation, you do need some perhaps um, some some systems where, where you're not entirely deciding yourself. And at the same time, I feel like um, the more I work with it, the more I want to work with those things that, that I get to know. So to get to know what is what the 11 sounds like, how it interacts mm-hmm. with three or with five, and try to find that myself as opposed to setting up a system that spits out a ton of really interesting microtonal stuff that sort of mystifies me. I mean, I feel like there is music like that out there. A lot of, you know, Cage's microtonal stuff has that kind of character. Um, there's, you know, J- James Tenney did a lot of it too, late in his career, the Spectrum pieces. Um, I, so I kind of feel like I'm, I'm interested in maybe in finding more sort of smaller personal specific things within within the material and to, to so I, I end up working a lot by hand I guess that's what I'm saying okay um, I don't know when, no, that's, that's good um, when you are mentioning you know the the possible benefits of having like a machine make some decisions for you um, it makes me think of I mean like I guess one time I saw this philosophy video where they described aesthetics as being on the same spectrum as uh, ethics and I thought that was interesting because, you know, I guess they're both sort of theories of value. And um, so, you know, when you're making a decision, maybe it's the right or wrong decision or a good or bad decision. But um, I'm curious, uh, what am I getting at here? What I guess sort of what, how you define like aesthetics and like what your utility function as a composer would be in that respect. Um, like what? What is a right or wrong decision? If that's not too uh, too odd of a question. Yeah, I mean, I, in in a sense, uh, I think it's sort of true that it's a that I mean, composing is a it's a very individual activity. It, I mean, it has there's there's iterations of it where, where which can be very collective. You know, which uh, if you have a like. A, some of the work that we do with Harmonic Space Orchestra, for example, with uh, 15 musicians, we meet and, and try to intuitively work with the tuning material, and that can be fabulous. It's a, it's a, but it's a very different thing than the sort of uh, quite introverted and lonely, alone uh, mm-hmm. days of writing, let's say, a, a symphony or a big ensemble work. And uh, because you're you're doing this kind of constant improvising and reassessing, right? You're somehow spending a lot of time with repetition with the material to sort of to make to come to these uh, choices of which there are many, a chain of many many choices to make a piece. And often we feel like we have much too little time to do that, and yet somehow we have to do it. I think to to learn how to do that is really hard. It takes time and it takes daily practice. I mean, if mm-hmm. you, 
if you're, let's say, somebody who comes occasionally to composing, that's often a hard thing to do. And it's easy then to offload it to systems, to, you know, to whether, whether it's like, you know, open music or some other kind of machine that, that helps you out with that. But in the end, I think that the types of music that really um, maybe move beyond, let's say, an, like a, an individual hermetic practice and kind of reach out and become somehow iconic pieces that we want to hear again and again have to do not so much with like, you know, the sort of effusive um, outpourings of an individual, right? Because that's, that's maybe too subjective, you know, like, Mm -hmm. uh, but it has, it has to do with somehow something that you really that you find that you really want to hear and that's been really close closely listened to and you want to like you hear it and you you just want to hear it again and why do we want to hear some of these things again they're usually i find usually they're quite simple but incredibly rich in possibilities like reduced you know why why is you know why why do we want to come back to the well-tuned piano because it was one of the first pieces that shows us the sound of just intonation. It does it by simply reducing to seven and three and not having like everything. Um, you know, Harry Parch is always surprising because it all, the pieces sounds, on the one hand, the surface is always the same. You know, you have a lot of these noodles and, mm-hmm. you know, the percussions and so on. And then if you sit down and you really listen to it with the score and you and there's these amazing, strange counterpoints and unusual, the, the, the kind of imagine the poetic imagination there is like it could never come out of a machine it's like mm-hmm. super personal and i think those those kind of things are um what makes the difference between let's say a kind of very you know austere systematic but maybe cold expression uh, that's uh, maybe a little too automatiste and then something that's that, that we really we just um treasure in some way right and mm. uh, hard hard to ex- explain it but um, um you know i might be wrong but um i think this guy is based in berlin are you familiar with uh sam barker it goes by the name barker when he makes music no um well, he's an electronic musician but um yeah. his whole sort of epiphany he had is that um he wanted to do this like utilitarian like hedonistic utilitarian music um that's very you know, specifically just trying to like inflect like rhythmic pleasure. And um, I'm curious if you feel like your music is hedonistic any, in any sense, not in the sense of, you know, being a hedonistic individual, but like in the philosophical sense of, uh, you know, like hedonic things. Um, do you, do you want it to be like somewhat therapeutic in that respect or is there a different purpose? Um, like, are you more interested in stimulating uh, thought instead of, you know, sort of, pleasure signals um or sacredness what are you, what are you trying to invoke i guess if that makes yeah. sense well not 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 sort of um, discourse or argumentation like in the sort of in the way that the sort of schoenberg you know let's say analysis of the line from beethoven and so on not that kind of thing mm-hmm. um because I feel sort of this kind of discursive rhetorical aspect requires things to stand for other things. Things become sort of, you know, um, light motifs and symbols, and um, they start to resemble conflict and various other aspects. I think of the society maybe that is not not necessarily uh, where where music is maybe not the most efficient way to to do such a thing although it can be appealing for music to be dramatic in that way um i feel like the for me the most important thing is this the, the ability to sort of experience the sensation of the sound but also that 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 experience 
is like a thinking experience. It puts you really in a very open kind of space, a space where um, you're, you have, I find with my music, you have, you have to listen to it. It doesn't necessarily work that well in the background. It's right. a little bit annoying in the background. So there's, there's definitely this kind of like changing thing or, you know, like modulation or whatever. It's not like a dr drone, although it has sometimes often this minim minimal aspect. Uh, because if you're not following the changes or you're not thinking along with it or flowing along with it, then it feels like it's um, somehow bothersome. It doesn't work so well like that in the like in the car if there's like too much too much sort of um, other sort of chaos interacting with it, which right. it's, it's too bad. I, I like music that can do that, but it, it, I guess it doesn't do that. Um, and so I guess yes, part of part of it is pleasure, but um, I guess, I guess it's fairly in some way Apollonian sort of the the impulse right there's a, it's not so much of this kind of like just absolutely uh you know drunk with delirium <laughs> with sort of you know that kind of i i you know this parchian sort of dionysian kind of thing it doesn't have all of that it's uh, but at the same time i hope that it's somehow uh quite quite able at its best also to be not just heady but also uh, mm -hmm. sensuous and uh, also emotional sort of like so dealing with inner experience maybe or something yeah i think but, drunkenness is know. not how i would describe your music <laughs> yeah um i i interviewed uh, another microtonal composer um jeffrey holmes and he sort of sees his work as being um this connect or like collection of him being a formalist, um, a transcendentalist, and and I guess a romanticist or no traditionalist. I'm curious between those um, if you have any sort of uh, you know priority like uh, between transcendental formalism and uh, tradition. Well, uh, do you mean transcendentalism in an American sense? Like I think roughly yes. sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's something that I can really relate to if, if, if you mean it in that sense, sort of Ives. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in term, I mean, formalism seems to me, I always associated a little bit with sort of, uh, has somehow an, a, a negative association for you as a, as a term. But I mean, I think that sort of strictness, I mean, certainly, um, I have some pieces where sort of all the possibilities of something are articulated. Like there's mm -hmm. a piece called "You May Not Want to Be Here," which was after after Bruce Nelman, in in which those seven words, which are his his creation, his text, um, in, uh, ex come in all of the possible versions of being erased or not erased. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and this is a piece that I worked on together with Matteo Fargian. And I remember that Matteo was always saying, well, you could, you don't need to do all of them. You could do some of them, <laughs> just keep it musical. And uh, that was some, somewhere where, where we did not agree. I felt like to make that piece, then they would have to all be there. But I also felt like for them to be all, all there, I wanted to compose the order in which they were all there. Mm -hmm. And so I did, I did in, in the end do that. And... Uh, we worked with that order and found instrumentation changes, very subtle changes that made it quite, quite special. You know, there, there's I think there's a there's a couple of versions of that piece out there. You know, that, that one can hear. But it, so that's that. I guess that's formal in a way because it has to do with sort of an attention to form, mm -hmm. or the way in which um, structure maybe structuralism, where the way mm -hmm. structure creates a shape. You know, that's the sort of James Tenney idea of form, that the the division into parts, the, in, the individual structure creates form at the next, and then at the next level, it's it's a shape. Um, but I think that I would only like a form if the experience of it in time absolutely 
it's convincing to me. So, mm-hmm. for example, with Zarlino, which is a piece that we corresponded about, mm-hmm. the it took a long time to evolve from, let's say, just the counterpoint of the violin and viola, which is at, at the center of it, to the series of, of instrumentation variations, which exist on the on the um, CD version and then on the video version, which is a different mix. Like to find, let's say, a, a series of instrumentation changes where it's both formally logical, like where the changes make sense, and at the same time, it's absolutely um, musically making sense too. Like I think the two can coexist, but it's again, it's the transcendental one that that wins out, right? It has to be somehow transformative and also a little bit delirious, a little bit um, unknowable. Mm-hmm. That's what. Uh, would be a priority. What was the third third, uh, third, third one? Was, was romanticism? No. Uh, tradition, I guess, or tradition. Tradition. Um, yeah, I mean, in a sense, I mean, I come out of a certain tradition, right? I, I studied the violin, and so I know the classical music. So I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm not coming out of, let's say, punk or something like that. Although, you know, I think that there's more and more a multiplicity of traditions and the sense of what the tradition is, is um, I think there's things to treasure and there's also things which, uh, which can become sort of like, um, you know, sort of habitual hobby horses. And when you actually revisit it, it maybe it's not that great, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, like for example, the, you know, I think that it's great today that a much more, let's say, diverse set of persons of different backgrounds, different traditions are participating in a musical discourse. And we don't have this, so, you know, this is serious music and it's like orchestra and, you know, we go to the concert hall and the rest of it is like, yeah, these kind of hierarchies don't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I think, um, at the same time, uh, I, I love Jesualdo. Right, and uh, you know that's tradition. So, like you know, and the counterpoint there, and you know, if if you have somebody who's like writing music and they don't know about counterpoint, that's a shame, you know, because that helps. It's mm-hmm. a good thing to know. I mean, not not just the rules, but the what it means right. to have uh, layers, you know, going on uh, differently from each other in dialogue. Gotcha. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, you know, earlier we were talking about sort of the problem of just being seduced and obsessed with the materials and sort of just showing your notes and considering it a composition. But <laughs> I guess um, there's another problem that I'm sort of curious in, about that I'm describing as like the sunk costs of well temperament. And, you know, there are people that are quite literally, you know, financially and emotionally invested in equal temperament, like myself included, because I have guitars that are you know, tuned logarithmically, uh, with, you know, uh, 12 EDO. And so like the way that I get around this is that I try to do a lot of the just intonation stuff in the rhythmic domain, but, um, I'm curious, you know, uh, for well-meaning composers who sort of might be interested in microtonality, might have a sense of how to implement it, but like realistically, you know, they're sort of committed to, um, an instrument that's, you know, 12 EDO how would you suggest that they sort of uh, are brought into the fold or how, how, how can they handle that? Because it seems microtonality is like one of the main directions, but um, I feel like we can't you know, fully dismiss, you know, the equal tempered piano. Um, but like, it would be great to have everybody sort of on board with the same bigger picture. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like what we were just saying about diversity, I think that, 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 um, all you know, all frequencies are can be part of uh, composition. They can be so in in a harmonically ordered way or a harmonically disordered way. Harmonic order is just intonation; it's not anything else. But it can then be translated into one of many different kinds of temperaments, uh, including twelve EDO, which is a, a very well known one. And in 12 EDO, you can represent some stuff pretty well. So 
I, I don't think that it's necessarily a problem on a guitar. You, if you accept the bending of pitches, you're. I mean, if you listen to, you know, uh, country music, if you listen to, you know, bluegrass, whatever. I mean, uh, uh, blues music on on guitar, it's all bent in, into incredible, um, you know, tonal articulations of harmonic sounds. You mm-hmm. know, and and uh, there's also many possibilities which are inherent to a tempered structuring, whether it's, you know, like the sort of the parallel structuring of jazz, for example, which can also be translated to different equal temperaments and have different flavors. So um, I think one of the things is is not to sort of have this kind of... I think the big push towards equal temperament was standardization, which was basically economic. It had to do with the manufacture, distribution mm-hmm. of pianos, the British Empire, you know, getting the Broadwood pianos around the world. was That was one of the motivations. But, and, you know, another aspect was getting orchestras to sort of more or less tune together and to be able to have, like, chromatic notes that sort of fit together. But at the same time, the orchestra is wonderfully sort of messy, right? You have the brass instruments are sort of just intonation instruments. They have harmonic series, right? And their their valves are not tempered because it's not possible, but they're close. So, that you know, there's, a, there's sort of a just intonation, subharmonic tuning that kind of allows most of the tempered pitches to be replicated somewhere in the series. But the brass instruments have a lot of other notes. Those are usually excluded, but in orchestral repertoire, um, you know, they'll play natural sevenths or natural fifth partials when, you know, if the Bruckner chord is calling for it, they'll realize it, you know, so it's, that's it, you know, there's no uh, exclusion of other notes. The orchestra is definitely sort of a, an adaptive, just harmony instrument as well as equal temperament, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, a flu- sort of fluid systems. So I would say that, I mean, the first step is to maybe... Uh, explore what kind of harmonic sounds outside of equal temperament might be appealing. Uh, mean tone is a really good window into a different approach. It doesn't give you the even chromatic scale, but it gives you a great warmth, right? It gives you the totally just thirds. Uh, you have the diesis, you have near, near perfect sevenths, but very poor fifths. The fifths are sort of wobbly, but then suddenly you have a relationship between temp timbre and tuning, right? So that the tuning of the organ, for example, sounds like you've got a Leslie speaker on, even though it's just the tuning that's creating that. So mm-hmm. these kind of things are interesting. And of course, they're possible in the realm of equal temperament with, with bending. They're just not as, maybe as different, so not as pronounced to the ear. And then gradually, if you're composing with equal temperament, the same things, of course, are possible. How did Morton Feldman continue with equal temperament and write so harmonically in at the end of a century that was primarily atonal in its concerns. He did it because he heard that in the Webern chords, in these kind of you know major sevenths, minor ninths, these kind of chords, there was a, um, an echo of the seventeenth and nineteenth harmonics, and you could create uh, voicing structures that would bring those into harmonic focus as really in tune, really just intonation in equal temperament. And then he would create all these different permutations of it. Now, it may be something that he kind of stole from Benita Marcus. That's a possibility. But in any case, he did great stuff with it. You know, mm-hmm. he did nice work there. We're kind of taking the chromatic set and treating it harmonically through the lens of the just intonation or the harmonic series. So I guess I guess I think it can be applied uh, to equal temperament, and equal temperament can be part of multiple tuning systems. That would be sort of an approach if one is interested in sort of expanding this approach of harmonic sound and getting uh, getting into it. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I think these are these are most of the questions I had. Um, when, when you were talking about computer music earlier. Um, a question that came up for me is basically if you have a sense of any like research areas that you think are particularly fruitful for, um, you know, uh, the next generation of researchers in tuning theory or in acoustics or uh, any of these sort of fields, uh, just any low hanging fruit or anything that 
you know, as a high hanging fruit that you think should get special attention? Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear that, um, that depending on which kinds of, um, primes and their families you combine, you get quite different sort of sounding worlds. So if you, if you focus on just three and just Pythagorean, you get a certain kind of repertoire. I mean, Machaut is, is one example, right? If you, if five starts to dominate, you get a certain kind of warmth in the thirds. A lot of the mean tone music was driven by this, by by the sort of the warmth of the, the major thirds. Um, if seven comes into play and interacts with three, you get uh, some kind of blues world or like okay. what you hear yeah. in Lamont Young and so on and so forth. So various combinations of primes in, in even just pairwise combinations produce certain kinds of uh, characters, some of which have existing repertoires, whether it's, you know, Makam, Radif, uh, sort of uh, languages or um, blues languages or just, uh, I don't know, in English folk songs. You know, there's, there's many, many different examples. Barbershop singing, which mm -hmm. combines five and seven, right? There's, there's many kind of traditions... Uh, Georgian choirs, which work with certain kinds of melting of harmonic structures, not entirely harmonic series, but there's definitely incredible stuff going on in the shiftings, right? So it seems like navigating the different dimensions is something interesting. And I've been sort of thinking that um, perhaps in virtual reality, there's really mm. something that can be done there so that... Um, what is quite difficult to do in practice because it requires knowing which partial, which things, dy dynamic shifting of tuning systems. It is, of course, it is possible with a keyboard or with an alternate controller, but it might be even better in a, in a kind of multidimensional space that's not so spatially defined, but musically defined somehow. Hmm. But that requires a real interaction, I think, of, of artist, programmer, composer. It's an area that I'm kind of curious about and would like to do some exploring in because how to make that space right now, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of a gaming space. It's a, it's, you know, fairly primitive stage, but I do think that the future of musical and artistic activities will also include those kind of gestural interactions with machines, not, not just somebody with a headset on, you know, like banging around on a stage, which looks, looks so ridiculous, but right. actually experiencing, you know, sort of, uh, you know, collectively experiencing the structure of, uh, of sound in that way and, and being able to um, play it, manipulate it. I don't, I don't know if synthesis is at the level of sophistication to really do that, but I think it is. I think electronic sound, it's, it's really rich these days. And um, it's a lot of exploration has gone into rhythm and what can be done with rhythm, right? Mm -hmm. Since, um, I don't know, since uh, the pre-techno years and through hip hop and so on, a lot of stuff that's going on, sort of speech rhythm together with like, um, you know, uh, computerized rhythm, right? Really wonderful, sophisticated stuff where a lot of the stuff that happened in so-called new music didn't, you know, it looked like the complicated, but it doesn't sound that complicated, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't, doesn't get it, you know? Um, so I do, I, I do think that that's one area, sort of uh, the dimensionality of harmonic perception, it's possible melting into different, different kinds of temperaments or like even sort of, you know, transitions between different harmonic space. I mean, um, I find the kind of um, uh, there's a, sort of this theory, theory of primal, primodality that Zaya Rose has like brought mm -hmm. out, which is quite interesting as well. Which has to do with like looking at scales where the the, the high primes are in the bottom, and so only like certain notes in the scale are harmonious, but the other ones are harmonious with each other, but in relation to the tonic are quite distant relationships. Hmm. And that's an approach where rather than let's say the prime families above 
in relation to the root fundamental. That's another approach where you have like these kind of shifting colors of modality, which are then, um, they're not immediately perceptible from the ear. So you might not intuitively choose those tunings, but then having those kind of tunings on a machine and shifting with them creates sort of incredible textures as well, right? So I think there's a lot of things in that way where the um, sort of the research into harmonic structuring possibilities of the uh, harmonic series translated through uh, maybe computer, computer subsetting in real time and transitioning between different systems is going to mm -hmm. be quite, quite rich, I would imagine. You know, and um, become a, b a big part of you know musical explorations, but I I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll try um, to do what I can. Your mention of VR makes me, uh, you know, hope to someday see you set up with Jaron Lanier, you know, VR pioneer, because I know he's a big music guy. You know, he's really into composition and like ancient instruments, and so it mm. seems like a, that would be a fruitful collaboration. Um, also, I, I'm looking forward to talking to Zia um, on the podcast in the next week or so, yeah. hopefully. Great. But, um, uh, one last thing that I sort of wanted to ask about, like maybe the nuts and bolts of um, your composition, uh, something like in your, your new piece that you sent, um, I heard this very sort of interesting use of modulation, I think, and you mentioned modulation and flow, and your use of the word melting is um, very interesting to me. And so... Well, I don't need you to reveal any secret sauce unless you want to. I'd be happy to know. But um, can you explain the sort of how you're conceiving of modulation? Because it seems like, you know, and you also keep on saying the dimensionality and it literally feels like I'm being bent into a different dimension or something like that. Um, and so I'm just curious what's going on there. Um, I'm guessing you're talking about the piece with the broke the yes. which will have the broke instruments and the, and the contemporary instruments so that has like i mean the often the sort of the conception of how to approach it has to do with the situation here there is a meeting of two really nice groups in berlin one of them is zafran ensemble which is a contemporary music ensemble that doesn't has doesn't traditionally work with tuning so um they were interested to work with Justin Nation and learn more about it. And they were also doing a project where they were working with the Academy für Alte Musik Berlin, which is a group that I've wanted to work with for a long time. They're wonderful musicians. And they, they are going to be playing in the same concert, uh, Handel Concerto Grosso. There's also Schnittke. There's some other, other things. There's various things, also some early repertoire. So they're going to have their 415 instruments. They're going to be tuned in something like sixth comma. Okay. Uh, and this is something where sharps and flats and the notation to them are related to this kind of concept. And for the modern instruments, um, they normally would tune to 442 and they're used to equal temperament or pure fifths, which they then use as, as a basis and so I was thinking how can I combine sort of the things that interest me together with something which will be intuitive for the early music players and um, so the decision that I made at the time I was sort of thinking about for a long time I was thinking about well temperaments I wrote some articles about it and I came up with the just intonation well temperament which is basically to take the system of Velotti which is six fifths compressed by one-sixth of a Pythagorean comma, and then six pure fifths, making a well temperament, which I, I always thought that was kind of compelling because you have the Pythagorean fifths, and then you also have these compressed fifths, which actually, in just intonation, can be achieved by the very small deviations that tune the 17th and 19th partials. They're approximately a sixth and a third of a comma each. Mm. So... I kind of f had this idea of a reverse velotti, where the contemporary instruments are in perfect fifths, and then the remaining six fifths, which are then based on 17th and 19th partials, are narrow in the right amount, and they are also on the right notes for the Baroque players. And it turns out that just somehow it can work out. So the Baroque players have their normal tuning, 
and they're playing Velotti as far as they're concerned, or in sixth comma. And for the contemporary instruments, it just means the notes between B flat and B natural are in pure fifths. So then that, that the core of it was a kind of well temperament, so a, a version of um, a circulating temperament, so similar to equal temperament, but not. So every key has a slightly different beating speed. and the tr So that allows me then to use the, t the tempered triads and explore their slightly different beating speeds or characters. So the nicest way to do that is to have the same material descending or ascending chromatically, but ascending is nicer because it gets more and more consonant as the beating slows down. So then half of the piece is that, going down chromatically through the same chord progression. The other half of the piece is moving by fifths and showing off the pure fifths. And then, so on top of that, if you have the, the harmonic series, if it extends into just intonation, you get these kind of J-I sounds, which are sort of sharp fusions, but they melt then out of the Velotti note, so out of the, almost out of equal temperament in a funny way. And then for, because the 12 notes are shared among the Baroque and the modern instruments, when the Baroque instruments play, when they're playing the kind of harmonic series sounds, they're tempered because they're being played, they're played in six comma mean tone. So you get sounds which are quasi just, so sort of seven limit or 11 limit sounds played in a, in a mean tone way and then they shift into the just intonation way. And that, that kind of shifting, uh, I found, sounded really nice. You know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's sort of like describing a little bit of what is in the piece, but so it kind of, um, it's not then ideologically about, you know, okay, we have to get the exact tuning and we just show, okay, here's the seventh partial and so on. I mean, uh, pieces like that can be interesting too, but in this case, it's somehow there's, the, there's this, movement between these worlds, which I feel is, is I, I don't know, somehow it suits the piece because it's a sort of written in this really crazy time that we're in and uh, somehow where things seem to be like coexisting in, in a way that is hard to imagine. And there's obviously different perspectives, although I, I think you know the situation is somehow clear, but at the same time, um, this 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 sort of let's say movement between something being um, let's say untempered and pure to the ear, and the resulting fusion and the strangeness of that, the unevenness of it, as opposed to let's say this kind of smoothness and roundness of the the other perspective, then it makes it less of a, uh, let's say, of a value thing and more of somehow this is how the world is right now. And I felt like that was, you know, the only way I could kind of make sense of things right now. So mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I thought that the, the, the uh, combination of the two instrument sets was a very nice metaphor for that type of thing. So I'm glad that you're, yeah. you're also expressing that um, and that I wasn't just making things up. Um, well, um, I, I think I've exhausted all my questions. Are there any other topics you'd like to get to or any comments or um, you know anything that you want to plug or anything? Um. Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, I guess, uh, so you mentioned Plain Sound Music Edition. So mm -hmm. on the website, which I guess will be accessible to people watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, um, there are links to a lot of pieces which are made available from, you know, live recordings or uh, various sources and the scores are there in their entirety. So it's kind of a non-commercial non kind of undertaking and I enjoy hearing from anyone. So feel free to write to me and um, yeah, I, I, it was a real pleasure to talk to you and to be able to sort of reflect on some of these things. So thank you. Yeah, of course. And it was a pleasure talking to you as well. Um, well, uh, that will conclude this. Uh, Mark Sabat, thanks so much for chatting. Uh, stay in touch. All right. Thanks, everybody, so much for watching episode number 50 of The Bridge Podcast with my guest, Mark Sabat. 
Uh, I wanted to direct everybody to a piece of Marx that I really would encourage you to buy and listen to. It's a really interesting piece that it was my introduction to his work personally, and it's called Giuseppe Zarlino. It's a 70-minute piece that uh, basically is in this novel tonal space of about a major third and these instruments gradually come in, out, come in and out of these cycles and uh, sort of weave around each other with these particular inflections of uh, these tonal relationships. And it's a super interesting piece that makes this beautiful use of uh, very few materials to you know, get this uh, really interesting sort of uh, elegant weaving texture of different tones. And I suggest, you know, getting the album, sitting down, finding 70 minutes to really dedicate to listening to it and just enjoy the sonic space that he creates. It's it's really incredible. And anyway, um, I'll provide links for that in the description. Thanks so much again for watching this.